Hello and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. Today I'm speaking with Sabu Aslanian. He is Richard Hovenissian Endowed Chair of Modern Armenian History and Associate Professor of History at UCLA. Welcome to the podcast. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Nir. So today what we're going to be talking about is Armenians and mobility in the early uh, in the 17th century. And you know, often we've talked about on this podcast topics of Armenian history. We're also going to integrate with this another common topic, which is the history of print, uh, the history of writing, the history of communications. And we're going to be looking at the intersection of those two uh, in today's fascinating talk about uh, printing in the Armenian diaspora in the 17th and 18th centuries. Sibu, welcome again to the podcast. We're very happy to have you. Let's just maybe start with this general introduction to the topic. You know, I'm sure that many of our listeners might know that uh, the Armenians constituted a diaspora, perhaps one that was partially formed in the wake of state violence uh, in the late 19th century and then the genocide in the early 20th century. Uh, but what you're really focused on and most of your research is on uh, this different diaspora, this diaspora that was created in the early 17th uh, century. So maybe you could just give us a understanding of how that how that diaspora of Armenians came to be. Okay, well, once again, thank you for having me. Uh, yes, most people, you're right, Most when most people think about the Armenian diaspora, they think about the 20th century diaspora that was created in the uh, as a consequence largely of the genocide of 1915 and maybe even earlier to the violence of the 1890s. Mm-hmm. But lost in this larger conception of Armenian history that is sometimes reducible to these acts of violence of the early 20th century and late 19th century centuries is the fact that the Armenians constituted uh, a diaspora long, long before that. And in fact, it's, uh, had a very thriving and uh, in some ways quite vibrant history of a diaspora in the early modern period. Mm-hmm. My, my work as a specialist of Armenian history and global history is largely focused on this on the early modern experience of the Armenians. And part of my aim is to shed light on this period of early modernity in, in the Armenian experience that has often been described by Armenian scholars as the black hole of Armenian history and as a result has been relegated to the sidelines deserving very little attention or meriting very little attention by scholars. So what is worth attention? What why why should we pay attention to this period? So one should pay attention to it for many reasons, but largely because I think the Armenian experience in some ways exemplifies a much larger global experience of mobility and early modernity. And by that I mean that in the early beginning in the early sixteen hundreds, Armenians became uh highly mobile as a people and became dispersed all over the world, for the most part across Europe, the Mediterranean, and then the Indian Ocean Basin. Mm -hmm. And my work, my next book, essentially focuses on the origins and genesis of this dispersion and diaspora. And I essentially argue that this dispersion can be traced back specifically to a small window in history that stretches from 1596 to, let's say, 1608 or 1615 or 18. And by that window, I mean a time in history which 
for the Armenians at least, in my view, constitutes the genesis of early modernity. It's when the global came to the Armenians, largely residing at that time or up until that time, in the eastern periphery, peripheral regions of Anatolia, uh -huh. the Armenian plateau, if you will, the area that is today on the boundaries of uh, Iran, Armenia, and the Republic of Turkey. The Armenian homeland up until that point was where the majority of the Armenians lived, and it was in this area where, beginning in the 1590s, late 1590s, early 1600s, twin detonations of forced migration and mobility occurred, which have rarely been studied together. And these twin uh, acts of mobility are, on the one hand, the uh, fairly well-known phenomenon of the Jalali uprisings, uh -huh. well-known in the in Ottoman history to most of our listeners here, and also the lesser well-known phenomenon of the Soviet Ottoman wars in this frontier region, which resulted in the Buyuk Sürgün of Shah Abbas I, both of which essentially created massive waves of forced migration of Armenians and others away from this the zone of the habitat of the Armenian people up until that point. The, the Jalali rebellions essentially created the basis for what we now call the Western Armenian diaspora in places like Istanbul, uh -huh. Izmir, and Rodosto, and subsequent to that to the Mediterranean. The other uh, migration, the forced migration of Shah Abbas created the Eastern Armenian diaspora, largely focused in the out outskirts of Isfahan, of, of the Soviet capital of Isfahan, known as the township of New Julfa and subsequently mm -hmm. to the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean. So my work focuses on these twin acts of detonation and essentially argues that through forced migration, several a uh, generation later, what one witnesses is the, the more voluntary migration and mobility of uh, thousands of Armenians in the form of pilgrims or merchants traveling and establishing a vibrant network of diasporic settlements, mm -hmm. mostly focused and coalescing around port cities across the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean, as well as the Atlantic seaboard. Huh. So I just want to kind of jump right back, jump back a little bit. So, you know, you, you've kind of identified these two twin motors of the early modern Armenian experience, the kind of integration of Armenians into, the, into global history, into a life as a global diaspora. And that is actually something that I hadn't, I'd never put together in my head. Uh, that's the campaigns of Shah Abbas against the Ottomans, this kind of birth, burnt earth, uh, scorched earth campaign. Uh, if I remember correctly, and remind me if I'm wrong, you know, it's this where Shah Abbas is fighting the Ottomans and he's basically in order to ensure that they don't have any food or villages to uh, stock up from, he's burning all these places down, purposefully uh, moving these communities to uh, outside of Isfahan. Is that correct? Yes, that's, that's fairly accurate. The war, as you know, the, the Ottoman Soviet Wars uh, began in earnest in 1603 uh, after Shah Abbas had taken about 15 years or so after the 1590 Treaty of Istanbul, mm -hmm. uh, ceding large tracts of Soviet territory to the Ottomans. And so during this interact, this period between 1590 and 1603, when Shah Abbas uh, began a centralizing uh, policy in his mm -hmm. regime, in his realm, uh, he felt ready finally or prepared to uh, commence uh, uh, fighting with the Ottomans in 1603. During this fighting, when the Persian, when the Soviet forces were on the retreat and the Ottomans were advancing towards them, the Shah ordered the forced burning or raising to the ground of the most of the region of the 
the frontier zone. Right. That included largely of uh, places where Armenians lived as well as non-Armenians, Kurds and others, many others. Yeah. And in the heat of the campaign of retreating from the Ottoman forces back into Savid uh, territory, the Shah then ordered the forced uh, relocation of the region's population, largely again of Armenians, consisting of Armenians, in, deep into Iran. And one segment of this population then was transported eventually to Isfahan, where the Shah allotted land across the Zayande River, mm -hmm. and where they built a thriving, a thriving colony of merchants, and, that, and named the region, their township, in memory of their evacuated town of New Julfa. Mm -hmm. the, the town that they evacuated was obviously Old Julfa, or at right. the time it wasn't known as such, but subsequently came to be known <laughs> as such. And so it's that population that then became the, uh, the nodal center for a global trade settlement, global network of trade, mm -hmm. trade settlements. Um, so that's the Eastern Armenian right. diaspora in the early modern period. So the Jalalis did something similar to mm -hmm. the uh, that affected the Western Armenian diaspora. Right. So the Jalali rebellions are, you know, a set of, uh, for our listeners that might not be familiar with them, are a set of rebellions and banditries that kind of erupted in the very late 16th century and continued around until the 1640s, uh, in which actually set off a variety of migrations of rural populations, a sort of rural collapse in large portions of Anatolia, uh, and set a stream of migrants towards the cities. And so it's interesting, you know, I've always seen this from the Muslim side, both uh, the effects of the Ottoman Safavid Wars in the early 17th century and the Jalali rebellions. You know, you see the migrations to the cities. Uh, and I see, for instance, a lot of Sunni scholars fleeing from Karabakh, from Shirvan, from Azerbaijan, and all these border areas into Ottoman cities and kind of becoming strong anti-Safavid propagandists. But I'm, I'm uh, intrigued how we can now tie in into this story as well, the kind of story of a, a new kind of global Armenian diaspora. Sure, yeah. yeah. So, it's a, so so far we've kind of traced a fascinating story of how Armenians get integrated into a global history of diaspora, one that, you know, it's to some degree well-known, uh, but what we really have here is Armenians being part of a set of global migrations. Often we think about, for instance, uh, the forced migrations involved in slavery, uh, or other forms of labor migrations, and it seems like the Armenians are also now part of this uh, contemporary or contemporaneous global history story. Yes, certainly. I mean, there are, uh, as you well know, not just uh, there is not just the case of the forced migration of Africans into bondage and slavery across the Atlantic, mm -hmm. which of course stands out as the epitome of the mobility experience in this period, forced mobility. But of course, also the forced mobility of others, such as, for instance, the the story of the Iberian Jews who were expelled from the Iberian Peninsula in the late 15th, early 16th centuries, mm -hmm. and also following that, that of the Moriscos. Mm -hmm. uh, there are also uh, other sets of migrant migrants forced mobility uh, from Europe to the to the New World, uh, or within Europe itself, within the boundaries right. of Europe. So the Armenian the Armenian experience. Uh, I think in many ways exemplifies this larger trend and, and in some ways also highlights certain things that are not uh, well brought out to the surface when one only exclusively focuses on these other forced migrations. Okay, so once these migrations start, what happens to to them and their community? You know, in a sense, we know that some of them become very rich, but you know, what is the process of migration on them and, and their subjecthood? Well, uh, one could say that one of the things that is brought out to the surface uh, 
in a, in a in the state of clarity when one looks at the Armenian experiences that once they they're forced to cross boundaries, uh, regional, cultural, and so forth, many of these uh, individuals, and I'm thinking mostly here of merchants, in the late in the middle of the 1600s, uh-huh. come to embody certain traits that are always almost there as trans almost trans historical traits in the Armenian condition dating back to antiquity, but really come into full light uh, as defining features of the Armenian experience in the early modern period. And by this, mm-hmm. I mean traits that involve their status as liminal subjects. And by that, I mean they're liminal in the sense that they they are, to use Victor Turner's term for this, people of the threshold. They they are neither here nor there. They are between and betwixt. betwixt. They are always in a process of movement, uh-huh. neither being part of one culture nor another. Almost always eternal strangers to both, if they happen to be straddling cultural frontiers. And many of these individuals embody these traits. They're very good in languages. They speak multiple languages. They translate, sometimes literally, sometimes metaphorically, between cultures. Mm-hmm. And that has always been uh, something about the early modern experience of the Armenians that I've, I've come to... Uh, feel an attraction for because uh, I suppose there is this interest in looking at people who are neither here nor there, which which is uh, at the same time both a strength for these subjects and for early modern Armenian history for the Armenians, but also a double-edged sword in the sense that it has an underside because when people are in between boundaries, in some ways they can be looked upon as uh, trustworthy and so forth because they don't have any allegiances. Mm-hmm. And they're also uh, service nomads, uh, to use a term by, I forget his name, the author of the book, The Jewish Century, uh, Yuri Izleskin. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, they're ideal, ideal typical service nomads, like the Jews and like a few other uh, in, uh, minority communities across the world who are in a state of flux or movement. But at the same time, uh, the underside of the liminality status of these Armenians, Armenian subjects is that they're also seen sometimes as being deeply threatening and uh, deeply suspicious or suspect as a people, untrustworthy, yeah. sometimes even treacherous, and hence the reason for the sometimes extremely dehumanizing and negative stereotypes of Armenians that one comes across, particularly on the part of some of the European, their European interlocutors. So maybe you could just give us one or two examples of uh, you know, specific examples of these Armenians who function as liminal subjects, and how did that work? Yes, well, the two examples that I have in mind that both deal with uh, the realm of the Indian Ocean, where the Armenian diaspora of the eastern branch, mm-hmm. those who migrated there as a result of the Shah Abbas uh, forced migrations, eventually settled in the, sev- in the 17th and 18th centuries. Mm-hmm. The first example comes from the, the uh, English... East India Company uh, settlement of Calcutta, uh, where before the establishment of the settlement itself in 1690, you had the English trying to negotiate a farman with the, uh, I think, the the governor of Bengal, who was then under uh, Aurangzeb's immediate uh, uh, authority to grant the English company special privileges to set up a factory, quote-unquote, a factory in Calcutta. And one of the individuals involved in these negotiations was an Armenian merchant of Julfan origin, 
by the name of Koja Israel Di Sarhat, who was fairly active in making this an important and pivotal in making this uh, grant possible for the English East India Company. Hmm. Another example is the person, uh, a Jolfan merchant by the name of Markaradi Avashins, who was also pivotal in getting the Compagnie des Indes Orientales of the French, established by Colbert in 1664, the grant to establish their, one of their major settlements in southern India in a place called Mazuli Patam in 1669. In both cases, these were made possible because the individuals at at the forefront of, the, of these negotiations were Armenians who were cross-cultural brokers, go-betweens, and people who uh, embodied this liminality that I've been alluding to. Mm-hmm. So welcome back. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm speaking with Sabu Aslanian. We're speaking about mobility and Armenians and print in the 17th century. And up to now, we've really talked about kind of the emergence of Armenians on the global stage as a diaspora in the 17th century. But we're going to kind of now broach into this second topic that we have, which is um, the wide world of print that they ended up using. So I was just wondering, Sabu, what is, you know, what's their motivation to start printing and why and what's this connection between, you know, the diaspora, the port cities and the printers? Sure. Great question. Uh, the motivation for printing, it's the, that question is actually um, quite a vexing question in the sense that there are no clear cut and compelling arguments for why the Armenians began to embrace Gutenberg's technology fairly early on. Just by by way of some background information, uh, Gutenberg, of course, published his Bible in the 1450s, 1455, 53 Mm -hmm. in Mainz. Uh, The Gutenberg uh, galaxy itself, to use the term by McLuhan, began in earnest to uh, take shape in the second half of the 15th century. It was only 70 years after Gutenberg's invention that radicalized the world that the first Armenian printing press was established and now it was established in venice in 1512 mm-hmm. uh and then there was another another two sets of printing presses in venice in the 1560s 1540s and 60s and then you had a whole series of other printing presses in europe in places like amsterdam marseille livorno uh venice of course and then eventually um, the center of armenian printing gravitated back to its uh, core in, in the east to Istanbul, Izmir, and then eventually to Calcutta, Madras, and so forth. And so, wow. one of the things one notices when one looks at Armenian, the Armenian mm-hmm. print experience is that there seems to be a pattern here. Mm-hmm. In all cases, there are approximately 19 or 20 printing presses between 1512 and 1800, all of them in the early modern period. And in these 19 or so printing cases, printing establishments, one notices that 16 or 17 of them happen to be in port city locations. Hmm. So, of course, the question that naturally arises to anyone who's interested in pattern recognition, which I think is the quintessential talent that historians are expected (laughs) to have, is that 
there is a there seems to be a synergy here between printing and port cities mm -hmm. and well this is one of the questions i ask in my forthcoming book as to why is this the case yeah why is it that, that they seem to be gravitating towards port cities let me let me just backtrack for one second because i i now remembered your the, the question that got me off on this tangent and that is the question as to why the armenians would have been so interested in print culture so early on 60 70 years after gutenberg and that question as i mentioned is vexed vexed there are no compelling theories about it but the one that i prefer and that i i stick to in my book is that the reasons why the armenians were actively involved in printing so early on are actually the, re the same reasons uh, as to why their diaspora was created in the beginning uh, to begin with and that is that in the course of the ottoman Safavid wars of the early 1600s as well as the jalali uprisings a period that was uh, that marked that was marked by upheaval and uncertainty and forced displacements and dislocations in the region where the Armenians lived in their homeland. That same period that created the diaspora also created the conditions for which uh, uh, the, the the very same subjects of the diaspora mm -hmm. would be interested in print. And that is that it marked uh, the wide scale. Um, ruin of manuscript cultural uh, centers of manuscript copying in the uh, in the armenian plateau or in mm. the eastern provinces of anatolia and that the argument is that because of the the uncertainty and upheaval during this period uh the number of armenian manuscripts particularly of religious manuscripts mm -hmm. gospels bibles and so forth was drastically reduced and that reduction was felt by the members of the Armenian church hierarchy. Really? And was the principal uh, motivation for the church to grab the technology of Gothenburg print by both horns. Mm. In the Islamic cases, you know, there was a reluctance by uh, religious authorities to grasp print technology. Mm. Whereas in the Armenian case, the church was at the forefront of promoting print technology. And the reason for this is because they saw in it an opportunity to make available uh bibles uh scriptures that were uh, in very they were extremely expensive at the time because of uh the law of supply and demand and because right. essentially there was a crisis in supply and so um so that that would be a principal um so it sounds like cause for the adoption of print technology so correct me if i'm wrong so you said 70 years after gutenberg so that would probably put you like 1520 1530 is the first Armenian experience uh, experiments in printing. 1512, but, yes. 1512. So you have, uh, but then prodded by the kind of shock of the Jalali revolts and the dislocations, you have a new kind of desire, a new motivation, a motor to bring printing uh, to a variety of different uh, locations of this diaspora. Yes, certainly. And in almost all the cases, one notices that the principal actors behind printing are uh, the Armenian church hierarchy, the educated class of mm -hmm. clerics, usually higher level clerics, who are Vardabeds or uh, Archimandrites, doctors of theology within the Armenian church, who are sent and delegated by the Armenian church, the upper echelons of the church hierarchy, in this case, the Catholicoi or the Catholicoses of the Armenian church, the Armenian equivalent mm -hmm. of the Pope, to travel to Europe, to the, to the centers of printing in Europe, in this case, mostly originally with the Italian peninsula, and there to learn and master the craft of printing so that they would accomplish the printing of Ar Armenian scriptures. 
Gospels, the, the scriptures as a whole, the Old and New Testament, uh, Psalters, etc., etc. And this becomes the overriding ambition and focus of the Armenian Church for the first half of the early modern period. Uh, it is mostly these higher level people who are Vartabets who are sent from Echmiadzin, the principal uh, epicenter of the Armenian Church in what is today Armenia. And they're sent in waves and waves of, well, maybe wave is not the right term because it, inv it impl implies large numbers. We're talking here, as we are with the early modern period as a whole, about the, the acts of particular individuals. Very few in number, but disproportionate mm. uh, to their size. Were you um, able to track any of these individuals in your, in your yes, study? Yes, I've tracked many of these individuals in micro detail, and I've focused largely on, um, let's say, the most important printer for this period, and that is Voskan Yerevansi, who was originally from New Julfa, Born and raised in New Julfa, his grandparents, his parents were from Yerevan, hence the moniker Yerevanzi, who was sent by Catholicos Alex, uh, Hagop Juhayati, Jacob uh, from Julfa, who was the Catholicos from 1555 to 1680. So Voskan was sent by uh, Hagop to Italy to print the Armenian, the Armenian Bible. Uh, prior to Voskan, uh, one other individual had, individual had been sent to Italy. But like others before him, he had gone to Venice, then Rome, mm -hmm. and then realized uh, that this one person in qu in question, that is Mateos of Van uh, Mateos uh, of Tsar, the village of Tsar, which is today's Kelbajar in the Nagorno Karabakh in Armenia uh, liminal zone. This individual arrived in Rome after great travails mm -hmm. of traveling of mobility across Anatolia to the Mediterranean and so on, and realized that he couldn't really. He was bumping up against walls wherever he went. There was opposition to his uh, as aspiration of printing a Bible. And so finally... Why, why was that? The reason was mostly because the Catholic, as, as, as Mateos himself realized, and this is in 1558, I mean 1658, the reason, as he realized, was that the, uh, the propaganda fide, the, the institution created in Rome in 1622 as... Uh, as a kind of bulwark against the Reformation. Uh -huh. uh, the Propaganda Fide itself uh, was actively involved in putting up obstacles in the way of Armenian print, in the way of the Armenians printing their own Bible, uh -huh. because they were afraid that they would, they would introduce schismatic and heretical uh, uh, readings of the Bible into their print. And so at every opportunity, there was an obstacle facing this early printer, uh, Mateos from uh, Tsar, Mateos Tsaretsi, so in 1658, he, uh, suddenly a light bulb went off in his head, lit up in his head, and he realized that the problem why he was getting nowhere was because of this opposition. And for reasons that we do not fully uh, understand at the moment, uh, Mateos decided to try a new destination. Not the Italian peninsula, but radically for the very first time in 1658, he decided to travel to Amsterdam the capital of the United Provinces in the Netherlands, where in the 1620s, uh, the, the Jewish printers, uh, who had also been printing in the Italian peninsula up until then, had, for similar reasons, relocated their, their center of gravity. Mm. And, uh, so Mateos, I'm not sure if he knew about this earlier Hebrew or Jewish experience of relocating printing from the Italian peninsula to, the, to Amsterdam uh, or not, uh, for whatever reason, he decided to go to Amsterdam, and within two years, 
he began printing a Psalter, and eventually Voskani Revanzi from Julfa arrived and through his brother acquired his printing press and quickly began to uh, set to work uh, printing the first Armenian Bible, which he successfully accomplished in 1666 to 68. Wow. And Armenian printing basically stayed in Amsterdam, a port city, of course, from the 1660s until 1717, printing, uh, housing uh, three or four separate Armenian printing establishments and printing uh, a number of Armenian books, many of which stand out for their high level of expertise in the art of printing itself, as well as the contents of these works. So what were they printing, I mean, after the Bible? Uh, they were printing after the Bible, uh, mostly religious works, but religion and religious topics were not uh, exclusively the, the preoccupation of these early printers. Right. Uh, for instance, uh, Voskani Revanzi himself, in addition to printing the Bible, in Amsterdam, he printed also the first work of history in Armenian in the early modern period, uh, and also the first work printed by an Armenian scholar while the scholar was still while the, while the author was still alive, and that is Arakel of Tabriz's or Arakel Tavrizetsi's uh, Girk Batmutyans, or the Book of Histories, published in Amsterdam for the, for the very first time in 1669. Hmm. Uh, subsequent to that, of course, Voskan's press moved to uh, Livorno for two years in the 1670s, and in 1672 or so moved it's based to Marseille in southern France, the Provençal, Provençal uh, port city of Marseille, mm. where he printed, where his heirs printed works that were secular in nature. For instance, a treatise on uh, arithmetic for merchants, grammars of the Italian language for mm -hmm. merchants as well, and, uh, and so forth. So, mm -hmm. And later on, philosophical tracts in the 70, early 1700s. So... From these port cities in Europe, like Amsterdam or Livorno, do we get a sense that then they, they sent their books around to other communities of Armenians around the world, you know, to South Asia uh, or back to, uh, to Istanbul or to even, you know, Eastern Anatolia? Yes, certainly. I mean, uh, while the center of book production uh, happened to be initially, at least up until the 17, early 1700s, located in various port cities in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic uh, seaboard region, mm -hmm. uh, the, the center of book consumption was always the same, and that was mostly in the, in the city of Istanbul and also the city of Izmir, both of them port cities, mm -hmm. both of them, and especially Istanbul, constituting the largest congregation of urban Armenians anywhere in the world. Right. In the 16, late 1600s, there were close to uh, 80,000 Armenians living in Istanbul, most of whom, by the way, were offspring of people who had been forcibly relocated there as a result of the Jalalis. Mm. So these people constituted the base of the consumer, the consumer base to the, to the Armenian printers who were printing in Europe. And the books that were sent to them uh, to be consumed and bought, obviously, were usually shipped from port cities like Amsterdam or Livorno or Marseille uh, via Izmir. And from Izmir, Smyrna, they were uh, loaded on caravans and sent to Istanbul on the one hand. And then some were also sent further to the east, uh -huh. to the uh, region of central and eastern Anatolia or the Armenian Plateau, where they were uh, bought and uh, read by Armenians living in those, in those areas. So there wasn't a... Uh, a printing press within Istanbul itself? Or no, within Istanbul itself, the first printing press, as you know, in Istanbul, the first Armenian printing press was established in 15, 
65, if memory serves. It was established by a man named Abgar of Tokat, uh -huh. Abgar Tokateci, who had been printing in Venice in the 15, 1560s, uh, 1564-65, I believe. After Venice, Abgar uh, relocated his press to Istanbul, and there for two years he printed about five or six titles. Uh, so there was a printing press, but there was a gap in printing after 1576 until the very late years of the 1600s, until the early 1700s. So during that gap, uh, printers like Voskani Revanti and so on, who were printing in Amsterdam, were shipping their books to consumers in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. So I can't think, you know, when I think about the story uh, of printing and of kind of publishing uh, religious tracts or Bibles, what I think about is also the kind of attempt by the Catholic Church to convert Armenians and to convert other Christians in the Ottoman Empire uh, to Catholicism. And, you know, as you mentioned, the propaganda fide did not want necessarily to aid uh, these kind of church-based Armenian printing projects. So I was wondering, you know, does it do these texts fit into this kind of story of the battle for uh, Christian souls in the Ottoman Empire? in this process of kind of continuing confessionalization over the 17th century? Sure, certainly. I mean, the whole issue of censorship, I think, here is really important in terms of uh, print seen as a battleground for saving souls. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, for this reason, I think uh, the propaganda fide, as I alluded to earlier, was adamantly uh, focused on censoring Armenian printers, especially when religious works were concerned. So in, the, in Amsterdam, of course, one of the reasons why Amsterdam was pre preferred by Matteo Zaretti uh, in 1657-58, and then later on by Voskan, was because Amsterdam, as you know, was a center of a secular republic that was Protestant. And as the stereotype of the, uh, of the city goes, it was a haven for all sorts of persecuted minorities and refugees, including Jews, Huguenots, Armenians and so forth, mm -hmm. and the lack of centralized censorship was a major uh, figure, that, a major aspect that attracted these printers. There, mm -hmm. uh, a place beyond the reach of the censors of the propaganda fide. But even there, they, the propaganda fide had a had its own spy or agent working for them, who was the papal nuncio in in the in the lower low countries, was reporting constantly on Voskan's activities. So certainly, I think the heightened uh, tensions and anxieties on the part of the uh, propaganda fide uh, of allowing Armenians to print the way they wanted to print the Armenian church uh, was, these anxieties were very much at the heart of shaping the outcome of Armenian print in Europe. So I'm just again trying to get an understanding of what's the audience of the reception of these works and many of us know that you know when you look at some Armenian script texts from the 17th and 18th century often they're actually in Turkish but written in Armenian characters. And was this also uh, material that these presses were uh, publishing? Yes, certainly. Very uh, interesting question. Um, the language uh, of these publications, for the most part, especially the religious publications, were was in Armenian and in classical Armenian or Grapar, the language that was beyond the reach of most people, even those who are literate. And yeah. it, it, should be, it should go without saying here that uh, the level of literacy during this period is extremely low, and this is one of the reasons why Armenian print actually never quite succeeds in becoming 
part of what Benedict Anderson famously referred to as print capitalism. Mm -hmm. It's always a venture that was supported by merchants, uh, with, uh, with uh, driven by different motivations. So it's not a commercially uh, it's successful. It's not a commercially successful enterprise. It's more as of a it is in philanthrop philanthropic. Yes, yeah. Uh, there are different reasons. One could be that uh, prestige power of in the individual, the merchant, the Port Armenian, as I call him, the mm -hmm. Jofan or the Ottoman uh, uh, long-distance merchant living in a port city, uh, could be motivated in bankrolling a printing press or uh, cons commissioning a book to be printed for reasons of that have to do with his own repu uh, family's reputation. Uh, obviously, religious factors, uh, the, the, redem the redemption or the uh, salvation of members of their own family and so right. on through prayers, etc. So it's not a commercially uh, a viable operation at this point. But going back to the issue of the, the language of these books, and this is connected to the commercial viability of the, of the press itself, the language was predominantly grappar or classical Armenian. The Bible was in classical Armenian, uh, all the religious uh, works, commentaries on the Gospels, the Gospels, the Psalters, were all in, in classical Armenian. However, beginning in 1675, in Marseille sp specifically, under Voskans, with Voskans Press, one notices the emergence of publication and print in the vernacular Armenian. That is to say, the language of uh, ordinary Armenians the equivalent of national languages, let's say in Europe versus Latin. So the, that the, that equivalent or that counterpart in the Armenian case uh, was vernacular Armenian, and the first uh, the first time one one sees vernacular Armenian in print uh, is precisely in these port cities in Marseille in 1675. A book of arithmetic is translated from Latin by a man named Hagop Hovannes uh, Holov in Armenian, Hovannes uh, Hagopian Holov. His nickname was Holov, which means uh, decliner or someone who, de uh, who is a grammarian and conjugates verbs <laughs> properly. And this person printed uh, the, the first vernacular book in Armenian, which is this treatise, mathematical treatise. The same person in 1688 also was active in Venice in the printing of the Psalms of David, not in the classical language, but as the printers very proudly stated in their preface, in the language of the vernacular, so that ordinary Armenians could read it. So these are the main two languages in which printing occurred. In the 18th century, beginning specifically in 1727, mm -hmm. in Venice, another port city, under the auspices of the Machitarist congregation of Catholic Armenian uh, erudite monks, one has the origins the, of the inception of the, the uh, very rich literary tradition in print uh -huh. um, a, a, a literary print tradition known uh, in a language in a heterographic language known as Armeno Turkish which is essentially Anatolian vernacular Turkish the language written in the Armenian script and that becomes the focus of Armenian printers in Venice Trieste and a few other places throughout much of the 18th century and begins really to take off in the 19th century flooding the markets of Istanbul, Izmir, and other places, mm -hmm. because most Armenians during this period were not only illiter illiterate, but to the extent that they were literate, they were literate in uh, Turkish. They spoke Turkish more than they spoke Armenian. And so the, the printing, these printers had to cater to their desires and their, their needs, and the way to do that was to print in Armeno-Turkish, which is this hybridized allographic language in the written in the language of written in the language of one culture, but in the script of another. Yeah.
well, thank you, Cebu, for this wonderful um, explanation of Armenian printing. You know, I, I think it's a very convincing argument uh, about why Armenian printing took off, kind of what spurred it, uh, how, in a sense, succeeded, in a sense, even if it was a ultimately more philanthropic than a commercial enterprise. But I think these examples are important because, you know, so often when we think about the Middle East and the history of print in the early modern world, you know, it's this kind of recurrent question of uh, why did print fail? Um, but it's important to look at these moments, these spaces in which kind of print existed, uh, spread, and uh, I don't know, to a certain degree flourished. And I think it really ties the history of Armenians and the Armenian diaspora into not only obviously a, an Ottoman history, uh, history of the Mediterranean, but a really a global history of diaspora, of mobility, and uh, to a certain degree, a history of technology uh, in printing. And I really appreciate uh, that you came out on the podcast and shared this information with us. Well, thank you so much, Nir. Uh, it's it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I hope that uh, what I've what I've said has been of interest to the listeners. Thank you all for listening. Yeah, and I mean, I, we very much look forward to your future research. Uh, do you have a name, a possible name for this book that's going to come out in yes, the future? Yes, uh, the manuscript is almost uh, completed. I'm still working on one of the last chapters, but hopefully it'll be done by the end of the summer. And the working title is Early Modernity, Modernity and Mobility, Port Cities and Printers Across the Armenian Diaspora, 1512 to 1800. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you again. And for our listeners uh, who want to find out more, come to our website. Uh, there'll be a very short bibliography of some sources you can follow up on. And of course, uh, you can wait and hopefully check out uh, Cebu's uh, wonderful uh, future work. And we also encourage you to come to our Facebook group, uh, check out the other podcasts uh, in our now 300 plus episodes. And tune again soon. Uh, to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Thank you.